Hi, I'm Brent Stafford and welcome to another edition of RegWatch on GFN.TV. There are few companies more reviled than those in the business of selling combustible cigarettes. Smoking kills and it took decades for tobacco companies to acknowledge this fact. But now the question is, what role should big tobacco play, if any, in helping smokers to quit? Joining us today to help untangle this question is Dr. Moira Gilchrist, VP of Strategic and Scientific Communications at Philip Morris International. Philip Morris is the largest multinational tobacco and cigarette manufacturing company in the world. It operates in over 180 countries, and thanks to its best-selling Marlboro brand, PMI brings in over $30 billion a year in sales. In 2016, the company announced its goal to deliver a smoke-free future. Dr. Gilchrist, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Brent, for having me. Much appreciated. Well, let's start with PMI's promise of a smoke-free future. What does that look like and how does PMI get there? So this um, really all started probably almost two decades ago um, when our researchers understood that it could be possible to create alternatives to cigarettes that had the potential to be less harmful but also the potential to be satisfactory alternatives for adults who, who currently smoke. So after we did the initial R&D and we started to have prototypes and we started to have early scientific information, we really decided that we had to go really all in, if you like, and, and make this the future of our company and, and, and really, you know, basically replace the cigarette. And, and, and that's where we're at right now. And I think we've made tremendous progress, um, certainly in the last decade. And it's, it's a really exciting thing to be part of. So before we dive deeper into this issue, please tell our viewers a bit about yourself and what brought you to PMI. So I trained as a pharmacist in the UK and in Scotland. Um, I did a PhD in pharmaceutical technology, essentially working on anti-cancer drugs. Um, After that, I went to work for the UK's largest cancer charity, Cancer Research UK, um, working on sort of orphan drug development um, for things like breast cancer. Um, And then went into the industry, the pharma industry proper, working on inhalation drug delivery. And then ended up in consulting. And um, when I did that, I I was asked to go on a project with Philip Morris International. And this was back in sort of 2004, 2005, because the company wanted to transform their R&D facility um, to be much more like a pharma company. So we came in and gave advice on the strategy, the skills and capabilities that would be required, the quality processes and so on. And that's when I got to learn about this ambition to go smoke free, although it was very nascent at the time. Um, And we did this very long project. And at the end, I was asked if I would like to join. Um, And of course, it was a very difficult decision because nobody in the public knew what the company was doing, but I had a chance to see it. And I thought, okay, if the company can get this right, then it could be a solution for more than a billion people on the planet who smoke. But it could also be a solution for me because I was a smoker at the time. And although I had um, given up many times, I had always gone back to smoking because I I enjoyed it. So there was a very personal connection to to the problem. And I decided to join. And and that's how I ended up um, with the company. That's an amazing story, working so closely on the science around cancer, for one thing, and then also being a smoker, 
joining a, a big tobacco company uh, in your process of quitting. I mean, that's that's amazing. Let me ask you this, Dr. Gilchrist. What do you say to those who blame big tobacco for creating and perpetuating the smoking problem in the first place? So I, I hear this a lot, and, and, and I wonder what blame actually brings. So are, are we trying to solve the problem of smoking, or are we trying to point fingers? And I think I'm, I, people can have whatever p- opinion they like about the industry I work in, the company I work in, the, the, the work we do, as long as it's based on facts. And I think quite often people who are looking to point blame have, have lost track of the facts. And I just ask people to go and look at what we're doing, look at what we're doing today, and, and make a judgment based on that. And, and let's, I want to work together with people to solve this problem. There's, there's, there's no point, there's no, there's no benefit in seeking out blame, in my view. Tell us about the investment a little more deeply in terms of what was spent in terms of product development in the science. And most importantly, how strong is the science on reduced risk products? So I, I'll start with the second part of your question first. I think the science now is, is really strong. We have really good evidence that smoke-free products um, have the potential to, to bring a real benefit for public health if we can ensure that they get into the right hands, which is adults who would otherwise continue to smoke. And we can keep them out of the wrong hands, which is people who don't currently smoke with a particular emphasis on youth. And I think we at Philip Morris International have done a really good job of ensuring ensuring that. So with with the science that we see, with getting it into the right hands of the right audience, there there really is a potential benefit for for public health based on what I see um, scientifically. And, and we invested in this um, right from the get-go with, with you know, quite a quite amount of vigor, if you like. We're now at more than $9 billion that we have spent on the development, uh, research, and um, early manufacturing of smoke-free alternatives. I think that's an unprecedented unprecedented investment in in the industry and we're continuing we're continuing to develop new prototypes new products and we're also continuing to develop the science because we believe that it's really important to get long-term evidence for example many people are nervous about these products because they don't know what will happen in the long term and that's a very valid concern so we're investing in ensuring that we get the scientific data over the long term now, the premier reduced risk product for your company is the heat not burn technology. And is it ICOS branded everywhere in the world or just in North America? I know it is ICOS. It, it is ICOS, yes. We're, we're branded ICOS in, in all countries where, we're, where it's available, which is now, I think, 70 markets worldwide. And what has been the success story if there has been one? Well, Frankly, it blew me away, having been involved in the project from from the moment it was sort of drawn on a flip chart, the idea, to to where we are now. It's an incredible, incredible story, and it's happened incredibly quickly. So we we first started to get the scientific data and early clinical data, I would say, around about 2012. Because that was so promising, we decided to go into pilot markets in Japan and Italy, and that started in 2014. And of course, uh, sitting in the R&D facility, we were all very nervous about what was going to happen. Would consumers actually like this product? Would smokers actually want to switch to it? 
And very, very quickly, we saw that the answer was a very firm yes. We started to see queues developing outside the stores in Japan, which was really exciting. Um, and, and now we're in the position where um, I think around 19 million uh, people are using ICOS worldwide. And just over 13 million, we, we announced in June this year, had, had switched completely. So that means switched completely away from cigarettes to ICOS, and they've abandoned smoking. So that's just in a few short years, really since 2014-15, fast forward to, to 2022, I think that's really incredible progress and something I'm personally very proud of. Now, does PMI have any traditional vaping products, you know, the e-liquid types? Yeah, we do. Um, we, we took the approach from the very beginning that it would be important to offer a range of products to adult smokers, recognizing that there's not going to be one product that suits the needs and expectations of each and every one of the one bit more than a billion uh, people on the planet who smoke. So we have um, e-vapor products, we also have pouch products, um, and we have a range of, of heated tobacco products as well. And the idea is to, to provide you know, different types of experiences for adults who may be looking for an alternative to cigarette smoking. Just recently, I've seen a few odd bits and pieces of research saying that the heat and upburn technology has been showing that it's not got the same promise that, uh, say, PMI, and actually a lot of supporters in the tobacco harm reduction community have, and the research community have for it. So what's the nature of this research? And I'm talking recently. And how does that contrast with the fact that the FDA in 2020 did provide, you know, reduced risk marketing approval for ICOS? So we, we applied for what's called modified risk tobacco product um, status for ICOS back in 2016. Um, FDA spent four years pretty much um, pouring through the science, three and a half, four years, pouring through more than a million pages of science that we submitted back in 2016 and came to the conclusion that the product is appropriate to promote the public health. And they authorize it, uh, authorized us to, to make what's called reduced exposure claims. Um, so um, telling consumers, adult consumers, that switching completely to ICOS reduces their exposure to harmful and potentially harmful chemicals. So this wasn't a quick decision by FDA. This wasn't a decision that they just, you know, thought about. It was a proper scientific evaluation of million pages or more of, of data. So I would just ask people who are criticizing the product to go and look at that data and also to replicate it. If they don't trust our science for whatever reason, there's, there's no reason why they can't replicate those studies and see if they can come to the, the same conclusion as we did. And some, some um, scientists have done that and, and more or less they come to the same um, data, the same findings that, that we do. And we've been very, very transparent in making sure that people could see what, science, what scientific data we have, not just the conclusions we're making, but the raw data even because we understood that people would be skeptical so i would just say to people if you're skeptical go and look at the data i think one of the things that they're skeptical about is actually a big tobacco company getting involved in a business that kind of destroys the traditional sales that built their company and going to you know something far-fetched in the future what do you say to that 
I understand it seems very odd um, if, you, if you're looking from the outside. To us, it seems very natural. We have a better product. We know very clearly from the scientific evidence that it's much better than, than, than continuing to smoke. We have the will to do this because it's from a profitability perspective, it makes business sense for us. So it, it would be the wrong business decision to decide not to do this. Um, so, so we really decided to go all in because it makes perfect sense for public health and it makes perfect sense for us as a, as a business for the longer term. So how big then are reduced risk products in relation to total sales? The latest data that we announced, I think it was in June this year, June 2022, was that we're now at 29% of our net revenues are coming from smoke-free alternatives. And that's up from 0% basically in, in 2015. So an incredible trajectory. And we have the ambition that by 2025, we'll be a majority smoke-free company. That means that more than 50% of our um, total net revenues will come from smoke-free alternatives. The numbers kind of say it, don't they? Well, I hope so. And, and that's why we've been, we've been deliberately very, very vocal and transparent about these, these KPIs, if you like, key performance indicators. So people can check. People can check whether what we said last year has come true this year, whether what, what happens in 2025 is, is what we committed to, to, to make happen. And I think that's really important because we are operating in this environment of, of a deficit of trust and, and scepticism. We have nothing to hide. So we made these KPIs public and people can check on a quarterly basis how we're doing in terms of um, transforming our business. This is an excellent interview for us on our side because, you know, we've been trying to talk to the big bad wolf. Uh, and I don't see that as being big tobacco. I'd like to get Campaign for Tobacco Free Kids to sit down or Truth Initiative to sit down, you know, or somebody from Bloomberg Philanthropies to sit down. They're the big bad wolves, as far as we can tell. What do you think? Look, I think it's very unfortunate that these organizations won't sit down at the table with everybody who has a stake in this issue um, or rarely will sit down. I think I need to be fair. Sometimes they do come to conferences and we do have an opportunity to, to debate and discuss because it's only through discussion. It's only through hearing the point of view of each and every stakeholder that we're going to be able to progress forward, I think. And that means hearing the voice of the consumers who are affected and their families, hearing the voice of the, um, the non-governmental organizations who are concerned about this, and they have very le legitimate concerns, and hearing the voice of the industry um, and the players within the industry who can make a difference. And I think by sitting down and discussing, we have more chance of progressing more quickly towards a world where we reduce the the public health impact of, of people using nicotine-containing products. Is it frustrating, though? I mean, our coverage endlessly is about how these groups and, and you know, tobacco control in general uh, tend to kind of disregard completely, entirely, the consumers of tobacco products and, and consumers of, you know, safer alternatives. They're completely, totally erased uh, from this equation, at least from that their side. However, though, your company uh, caters to that customer. 
Well, look, I, I, I've been saying for years that I think the solution is to keep two things at the centre of the conversation. The first is people who are currently smoking. If we're ignoring them, if we're just pretending that they're going to do something that would be the perfect solution, which is to quit, some of them will, and that's great, that's great, that's the best thing anyone can do, but the vast majority of them won't. So I think we have to face reality and, and, and figure out what can we all do to help those people to manage their decisions in a better way, to manage their, their risk in a better way, if they choose to do so. And I think ignoring them and pretending that they're, they're all going to fall in line with the, 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 the right decision, if you like, which is to quit, I think is just the wrong thing to do. We're all people, we all do things which are, I mean, I was a smoker and I knew exactly the risk I was taking, but I chose to continue um, doing it and there are many people like me so we have to factor those people into the decision decision making the second thing we have to do is factor the science into the decision making it's very easy to say I'm not going to look at big tobacco science because I don't like the, the fact that they've fu they've funded it and I don't like the fact that um, I, I, I don't trust them. That's very easy to say. What's much more difficult is to dive into the data and figure out what does it mean. What's much more difficult is to try and replicate the studies and people are not doing that and that in, in, in a large amount. I find that intensely frustrating because it's the smokers who are going to be um, disenfranchised because of that. I'm a committed vapor. I, you know, I shouldn't even say vapor. I'm a committed daily recreational nicotine user. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I've been doing that since I was 15 and uh, for the entire time with legal product. So I, I'm not certain that I'm ready to just give up that habit because somebody in tobacco control has decided that my use of nicotine is going to hurt some 15-year-old. Well, look, if, if I may, I think um, some organizations and individuals have somehow seem to have lost sight of what the battle is. In my mind, the battle is against the disease and premature death that smoking causes. That's the battle. The battle, in some people's minds, seems to have morphed towards nicotine. And I, I don't understand that. So nicotine, we know, is not risk-free, it's addictive, and there are certain groups of people who absolutely should not use it, pregnant women, youth, people with serious cardiovascular disease, etc. But for the average person, for the average person who's smoking today, it's not nicotine that is the primary cause of the disease and premature death for them. It's all of the chemicals that are delivered in cigarette smoke, and there are thousands of them, some of them carcinogenic, some of them causing heart problems and, 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 and lung problems. So that's what we should be fighting. That's the immediate battle that we have today, because there are more than a billion people on the planet today who are drawing smoke into their lungs 20 times a day and will continue doing so because they don't want to quit. So what solutions can we find for those people? That's the battle that we need to be fighting today in my mind. Excellent point. And let me just play devil's advocate here. The comment would be, well, just stop selling cigarettes then. We get that comment all the time. Um, look, Philip Morris International stopping selling cigarettes does nothing to address the problem of smoking. 
because if we stop selling cigarettes, our competitors will just fill the gap. People will switch brands and they will continue smoking. What we want to do is to change people's demand for cigarettes. We want to be bringing better alternatives so that people don't want to buy cigarettes in the end, in, in the future. So selling our business to somebody else doesn't solve the problem of smoking. Stopping selling cigarettes doesn't solve the problem of smoking. Changing <clears throat> and reducing, excuse me, the demand for cigarettes, that can solve the problem of smoking. Dr. Gilchrist, tobacco harm reduction is a strategy that is being deployed in many places, though there are many other places that are resistant to it. What can you say about tobacco harm reduction? Is it a good strategy to use in this battle that you just described? So it's a strategy that's used in pretty much every other sector. Um, and I see no logical reason why it should not be used in the field of smoking and health. There is no logical scientific reason why it could not be successful. And I think it is being successful in, in many countries. If you take the UK, if you take Japan, um, it may not necessarily be labelled as tobacco harm reduction. It's, it's providing better alternatives for people who otherwise would continue to smoke. So it is happening. And I think we're going to start to see, and we are starting to see what I would term emerging epidemiological data. So data on large populations who have switched to better alternatives for a sufficient period of time. We start to see interesting data that shows that this can potentially have an impact on public health. In Japan, we see um, changes in the rate of hospital admissions, for example, for things like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease exacerbations. Now, we can't say today that that's caused by the introduction of ICOS, but we can see a correlation to the introduction of ICOS. And we're investigating now to see whether, whether it's actually causal. So we can start to see this data and we're looking in other countries as well. And if that starts to show a positive impact on public health, then we have the proof point. Tobacco harm reduction and providing these alternatives for adults who would otherwise continue to smoke is a positive strategy. How important is being freed up in terms of the messaging? No vape shop can legally promote the product as, you know, come here and, and use this vaping product and you can, you know, have a shot at quitting smoking. Or you could quit smoking by using these vapes that we sell at XYZ uh, Vape Store. I mean, there's thousands of those stores, at least there used to be. Pretty much you can't say anything in order to help share the truth about the product. Well, our experience in, in working with adult smokers on, on switching to, um, to alternatives over the last five, uh, five or more years has shown that it's really hard. So you have to help people with information. You have to help them with support. You have to reinform them. You have to re-encourage them. Because smokers, um, they, oftentimes they, they enjoy their cigarettes. And so you have to give them a reason to abandon something that they really enjoy doing. Um, so, so information provides a 
is a vital part of that um, persuasion. So I think in, in countries like the UK, they have a, a much different approach where the, the government has, is actually really encouraging people and providing information at the, uh, you know, at the trusted government source, um, never mind the companies. If you go to somewhere like the US, there's a law in place, which means that um, FDA have to authorize messaging. And I, I understand that. I encourage companies to go and take, you know, take advantage of that route if they can. But then also I would encourage um, people who are contributing to what I would call the information environment around smokers to play their, their part. If you Google, for example, is vaping safer than smoking or is heated tobacco safer, safer than smoking? The, the confusion that, that comes up in the results is just incredible. You have some articles saying yes, you have other articles saying no, you have other articles saying they're more dangerous. And if you're, if, if you're in this field, you can sort through those and understand where they're coming from and understand which is right and which is wrong. But if you're just an adult who is a cigarette smoker, who's never thought about this or looked into this, you're left completely confused. So I think we all have a responsibility to ensure that the information environment for adults who smoke is clean and clear so that they can make the right choices. So how is it then that people in the public, more people now believe that vaping, safer alternatives, vaping, uh, is as harmful or more harmful than smoking. And that's only a recent development in the last three to four years. So there, I can see a multitude of reasons um, for this having happened. The, the concerted efforts of many of these campaign groups to discourage, with, with good intentions, I believe, discourage youth from using these products have completely bled into the information environment for adults. So adults are left completely confused. There's been no separation, if you like, in the messaging. So you get every single week, you get a scare story in the media about vaping or, or other alternatives. And that leads to a societal impression that these products are much more dangerous than the science would, would, uh, would lead us to, to conclude. And that's the unfortunate thing. And, and I believe there have been concerted campaigns to muddy the waters, if you like, to, to create confusion. Um, I don't understand the full motivation other than the youth part, which we can all agree on. Youth should not be using these products. But I think these organizations and individuals need to leave room for adults to have proper, uh, accurate information. Yeah, you mentioned Googling. I mean, if you Google in Canada or the U.S., you're going to get bombarded with paid advertising and search results from government authorities or, say, state tobacco control organizations, California being one of the biggest one. And, and of course, I mean, so and, and none of that. Um, is going to help an adult sort through uh, the misinformation. Correct, correct. And I think that's that's the unfortunate thing. And I think there, there has been tremendous success in, in keeping product in general out of the hands of youth. There were, there were um, uh, unfortunate data coming out of the US where we, we saw a spike in youth use. We see that starting to now to, to um, decline. That's great news. And I think it's, it's really important that that happened. But 
now I think it's time to focus on the adults because they have been left out of this conversation. The adults who smoke have just been left to try and figure out things on themselves. And I think now is the time to, to be looking at both. We, we can't ignore the, the, you know, the, the potential of youth using these products. That's not what I'm saying. But we also can't ignore the adults who are just continuing to, to smoke cigarettes. Yeah, it can't just be all about trying to save the kids. Correct, correct. Share with us a little bit of information about this exposedtobacco.org group. They're very well-produced materials that they have, and they're going you know, straight head-on at Big Tobacco. Who are they? Well, it's a um, set of organizations that are funded by Bloomberg Philanthropies um, with the mission, as they call it themselves, to stop tobacco organizations and products. So basically, I would term them as a prohibitionist organization with an axe to grind against the the industry. And um, they have um, published uh, countless articles. They have funded investigative journalists. um, They do webinars. They do all sorts of things um, with the sole purpose, I believe, of discrediting Philip Morris International primarily, um, but other tobacco companies as well, and also smoke-free alternatives. And that's what worries me most. I I really, uh, you know, we're able to defend ourselves, but when people start muddying the waters about what the products are and what the science shows, that's when I get really concerned. Could there be a little bit of dragon slayer syndrome going on here? You know, Tobacco Control believed they licked big tobacco, in the 90s and 2000s. And now through vaping, your business and others have found new life and an innovative way to hook a new generation on nicotine. Well, again, which dragon are they trying to slay? <laughs> you know, the, this this fight, and I believe, you know, in, in the 90s and, and, and so on, it was absolutely right that these organizations had to address the problem of smoking. But that's morphed into just fighting against tobacco companies. And I think the problem of smoking has somehow been forgotten. Um, if you like. And, and, and that's because it's become a fight against tobacco companies, and, and particularly my company, they, they haven't looked at the company we are today. They haven't sort of thought through, I think, what does this fight mean today, given that Philip Morris International now has gone all in for better alternatives to cigarette smoking? And I think there just needs to be a little pause we just take a pause and say, okay, what would be the best step now for these organizations and individuals? What would be the best thing for public health that they could fight against or fight for? And I'm not sure that it's fighting against smoke-free alternatives and, and for the Mars International. With all that in mind, Dr. Gilchrist, is PMI looking for redemption? This is not a religion. <laughs> we, what we're doing is, is making a business out of better alternatives and, and going beyond that also into new streams of revenue in, 
in, in um, wellness and healthcare, which is really exciting for the longer term future of our company. I'm not looking for anything from anybody other than to do what we've set out as our mission, which is to um, end the sale of cigarettes for our company and, and transform the company into something completely different. We just had uh, Claude Bates on the show and he, he said that almost in a way, uh, tobacco control is operating like the new merchants of doubt. They're, they've embodied what, you know, the key thing that they blame tobacco companies for, uh, for decades. And that was creating, you know, misconceptions, muddling, muddling the waters and so forth. What do you think of that? Look, I think there, there's definitely an element of truth there. I see them accusing our company of doing things that they are exactly doing themselves. Um, and again, I think a moment of reflection is required. What exactly is the battle that needs to be fought today? And, and muddying the waters on the science, muddying the water on the data that shows that, that we are transforming, for example, what exactly is that achieving other than utter confusion among the people that these people claim to be helping, which is adults who, who are smoking? Dr. Gilchrist, as a journalist for 30 years, I could say two thirds of that time, you know, you give your eye teeth to have a story to take down big tobacco. But now I actually believe big tobacco on these issues more than public health. And there's only one way that happened. Look, I think people sometimes forget that, for example, my company is a U.S stock exchange listed company that comes with a tremendous set of responsibilities that includes telling the truth so saying what to investors what we're going to do and uh and, and following up on that we can't say whatever we like we can't just make things up and and, and leave them hanging there we have responsibilities for for, for telling the truth and so that drives the behavior that you see. There are laws and, and, and governance systems in, in, in place that means that we have to tell the truth. We have to accurately report our science. We have to you know, accurately, accurately, accurately report the, the transformation metrics um, because if we don't, we'll be in a lot of trouble with the Securities and Exchange Commission, for example. What are the checks and balances for the anti-tobacco organizations? What laws do they act under? What governance structures mean that they have to tell the truth, that they are responsible for the actions that they take? I don't know what their responsibilities are. And, and that worries me. I know exactly that every single word I say in public has meaning and, and, and I have to be very careful about it but I'm not sure about some of these campaign groups. Philip Morris uh, released this fall, 2022, a white paper called Rethinking Disruption. Now there's one section in there that was titled Beyond Sectarian Arguments. I wouldn't say it was political, but it was almost putting the, it's PMI's putting a finger on the zeitgeist of all the disruption uh, that's going on out there. Help, help explain that. Well, look, I think, you know, as, as we, as we're moving through this transformation, we, we've recognized 
the, the, the world is really polarized on this issue, really, really polarized. And if you look through history, history at any polarized issue, the only way the issue is solved was through discourse, discussion, and um, sitting around the table and almost negotiating, if you like. When we're going through this radical disruption, we can't expect that everybody will be on side. I think that's, that's, um, that, that wouldn't be normal. But what we do expect is that people would discuss it, people would share opinions, people would um, give us criticism, legitimate criticism where, where it's necessary, but also help us if people believe that this is the right thing to do. And, and I think most people and most of the public believe that it's the right thing to do for tobacco companies to transform. Doesn't that deserve a rational discussion based on facts, uh, based on a common understanding of what the problem is, based on a common path forward? And I think if we can do that, we can really accelerate the end of smoking. It's, it just requires a reasoned discussion and a commitment from everybody involved. Could regulation help in this effort? And if so, how? Of course, regulation can help, and it's something that we're working really hard to try and, and to try and get in place. Regulation can encourage good behaviors and bad behaviors, either either way, depending on how you do it. And I mean behaviors from consumers and also behaviors from industry, tobacco companies. So you can incentivize smokers to switch. If, if they don't quit, you can incentivize them to switch to smoke-free alternatives or not through regulation, through taxation, through providing information, etc. You can do the same with tobacco companies. You can create regulation that incentivizes tobacco companies to go faster towards um, products with the potential to reduce the risk of smoking-related diseases or not. It's a choice for governments. We would rather they chose to incentivize us to, to go more rapidly. And, you know, we've done a lot of thinking about the tools that could be put in place from a regulatory and policy perspective to, to do that. And we're happy to discuss this, uh, these with, with anybody, with any of the, the campaign groups, with any government, with any scientists, and get their feedback on, on what policies can really accelerate the end of smoking. Will PMI win the fight to create a smoke-free future? It's not a case of PMI winning. It's a case of, of adults who otherwise would continue to smoke winning. That's what I want to see happen. I want to see everybody who wants to continue using a tobacco or nicotine product having the choice to choose one that's better than a combustible cigarette.